those scenes gorgeous I, I love it the way they kind of pan through those those beautiful places this was actually in 4k not just HD which makes it that much more Wow um, so beautiful beautiful good good father and one of the things our good good father would seek to do for us is to give us a good good life in fact, the best life that we can experience on this side of heaven is what is offered to us if we would just come to Jesus and be willing to follow him in loving obedience, and then we would go on to do good things from a heart that is becoming good in Jesus. Good morning. My name is Bill Walker. I'm glad you're here today. How many goods did I give you so far? Let's see, there's good, good father. There is the good life. We will do good things from a heart that is becoming good. Good morning. So we've gotten off to a good start uh, so far this morning. And so hopefully we'll only go further from there. Well, we are doing a walk through the Sermon on the Mount. And it is about kingdom living today. Experiencing the rule of Christ in our lives now. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles with me today as we continue our uh, thought block by thought block walk through the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I prefer to call what I do expository preaching, considering a paragraph at a time, because a paragraph is a complete thought. And we want to make sure that we don't divvy up the Word of God, but that we actually can carry the thoughts forward as they were intended. So we are in Matthew chapter 5 this morning, Matthew chapter 5, and uh, we are going to be looking at um, the end of what is called the introduction to Jesus' message. Now, Jesus did speak in chapters 5, 6, and 7 what has been called the Sermon on the Mount. And is, with any message or sermon, there is an introduction before he gets into the body of what he wants to say. And so today, we are going to focus in on uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Uh, I've entitled this, The Impartation, The Impartation of the Good Life. How is it that one experiences in their own life the good life? And you're going to discover this today that it, it is by God's grace that that happens. It is the grace that is found in Jesus and the grace that is extended to us in and through his word. So, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Notice what Jesus said uh, in this portion. He went on to say this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but rather to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, in light of that, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called what? The least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called what? In the kingdom of heaven. That's what I hope to be doing this morning. I hope to be living them and teaching them because I want to be in the kingdom of heaven. He went on to say this, verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness 
exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Wow. A lot of profound thoughts here, a lot of very important truths. I'm going to invite you to bow your head with me as we go before the author, asking for enlightenment as to what he is seeking to say. Well, Father, thank you. Uh, thank you for the privilege of your word. Thank you that Jesus Christ gave us this very important speech because there's something that he really wants us to understand from what he said. And I pray even today, Father, that you would give us understanding uh, as to what Jesus meant when he said what he said and what the original hearers would have heard, and then help us to draw application living on this side of the cross. Please, Father, help us, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. My, my goal is very simple this morning. Uh, my intent is, is very simple. What I want to do to begin with is I want to get the setting right. I want to make sure we appreciate exactly what Jesus is saying to the people and how they understood it. And then I want to kind of do a quick break, and then I want to move into a, an application of what he was saying on this side of the cross. Because what he is saying ultimately in, impacts us deeply on this side of the cross, even though they were largely clueless on the other side. Let me show you what I mean. So, here we are. We are at the mountain overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has ascended to the mountain, and he is sitting in an exalted place. Rabbis, when they would teach with authority, they would sit down to speak. And so Jesus speaks, and there's this natural amphitheater as you go down the hill towards the water. And so he is speaking, and the masses are hearing. All this crowd is listening to what he is saying. And this is what they have heard thus far. They have heard that they are blessed. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Eight times Jesus called them blessed. He was giving them an invitation to know him and to walk with him and to enjoy him by obeying him. So he was giving this invitation and they were going to be blessed and who would have thought this is incredible? And then he told them, not only are you going to be blessed, but you're actually going to be salt and light and you're going to have a powerful influence in the lives of other people by doing good and bringing glory to God. And... and and they're hearing all of this, and they're, they're trying to wrestle with these thoughts because they were nobodies. They were people who were nobodies. We, 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 we aren't blessed. We aren't powerful. We aren't influential. We're nobodies, Jesus. What are you talking about? We have never heard somebody talk like you're talking because what we've been told for years by the teachers of the law is that it is the people who are moral. It is the people who do the 613 instructions and commandments and statutes of the Mosaic law. And then on addition to that, they actually do the teachings of the rabbis that are connected to the oral tradition of the law. Jesus, it is the powerful that have influence. Jesus, it is the important that have influence. It is the people at the top of society. They're the ones, Jesus, that have influence and authority. They're blessed of God. What are you talking about? You see, Jesus was about to turn the entire society on its head. 
What he was saying was so radical that they had never heard what he has said. They had never heard this before. You see, the way it worked within the social strata of, of Israel in those days, and it's not terribly different today in many ways, but what they would have understood in the various layers of society and of that culture is those who were at the top of the culture were the religious elite. This was the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those who were part of the priesthood, those who were part of the, the sacrificial system of Israel. It's the religious people that are at the top, and then just below them are the highly moral people. They may not be part of the priesthood. They may not be part of the Sanhedrin or, or the ruling body of Israel. But they're very moral people. And then just below that are, are the uh, political people, the savvy people. And below that is, is these people who, are, who are, are powerful and rich. You see, Jesus, according to the Mosaic law, they have those positions. They have been blessed of God to have those positions. And below them is everyone else. It is the poor. It is the sinners. It is the prostitutes. It is the tax collectors. It is the deformed. It is the people that nobody wants anything to do with. They're the ones at the bottom, Jesus. But Jesus, what you seem to be saying is this. Nobody's ever spoken like that before. Nobody's ever said things like this before. But you see, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus goes on to say later, those who are first will actually be the last. And those who are last are actually going to be the first. You see, what Jesus is saying is this, you got it all wrong. You see, it's those who exalt themselves, they will be humbled. But it's those who humble themselves and follow me, turning from their, their self and their sin and embrace me and, and follow me in loving obedience. If you will humble yourself, you will be exalted. And so Jesus is doing this. He is taking the cultural norms of that day, what religion has taught them, and he is doing this. It is called the scandal of grace. That is what Jesus is doing. He is radically blowing away their understanding of, of what life is about and what it means to know God and what it means to be blessed and to be influential. So they've just heard all of this stuff and they're blown away and they're, and they're struggling with their thoughts. And the first thing that many of them were thinking is, he's doing away with the Mosaic law. They never taught this. He must be doing away with the teachings of Moses. With that in mind, Jesus, anticipating their thought processes, says this. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, Jesus is talking about his relationship to the Old Testament. And he says this, do not think that I have come to abolish. The word abolish literally means to destroy the law or the prophets. I have not come to destroy them, but rather to fulfill them. This is what I am doing. I am not taking the Mosaic law and destroying it. I'm rather putting it in its proper perspective. I'm rather taking it away from the moralists and helping people to understand that the law was given to show you your sinfulness and to cast you in mercy upon God. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, which is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, 
the corresponding small uh, mark in the Hebrew alphabet would be the, um, the Yoda. And so it's kind of a, a little breath mark. He says, not even that or a dot, which is merely a, a part of a letter in order to make it look different than the other letters, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so Jesus said this to them, and they're all like, what? What? Okay. So he's not doing away with the Mosaic Law, right? Yeah, I think that's what he meant. He said something about not abolishing it twice. Oh, Okay. I still don't get it. He's going to fulfill it? You, you see, they're wrestling with these thoughts. You see, they knew that Messiah would ultimately come through the Davidic line. They knew that Messiah would ultimately be a king like King David was. They had this appreciation that the Messiah to come was going to be a, a military and political leader. They had that kind of concept. But what Jesus is saying here is much more than just that. And we will actually go on to talk about this more. He actually comes to fulfill the law. He actually comes to fulfill the ceremonial and the sacrificial system that the law was employed to do. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So they're like scratching their heads. I'm not sure I really know what he means. I'm really wrestling with this whole being blessed and being influential stuff. I kind of like that. Now Jesus goes on to really waylay them. He's about really to kind of just knock them out of their socks because he not only talks about his relationship to the Old Testament, that he didn't come to abolish it, but rather fulfill it. And then he goes on to talk to them about their relationship to the law. This is his disciples and their relationship to the Old Testament. He goes on to say this, Therefore, in light of the fact that it didn't come to abolish the Mosaic Law or the prophets, but rather to fulfill them, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And this is where he gets them. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were like these religious machines. What they did is think about the law all day long. What they did is memorize the law all day long. What they did all day long is they talked about how can we do it better and, and more, in, you know, let, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. They lived their whole lives to live out the law. And so what they're hearing is, I can't go to the kingdom of heaven. I can never exceed the righteousness of these machines called the scribes and the Pharisees. But the reality is this. They were machines. They had no heart. They could go through all of the external rigors of the process. They could do all these amazing things. But all they were doing is they were doing it for show. They were doing it for the eyes of people. Here, let me show you how loudly and good I can pray. Everybody listen. Oh, thou wonderful, gracious, sovereign Father. And you're all impressed, aren't you? They would stand on the street corners, and they would, they would display their righteousnesses before the people. Everybody's like, oh my gosh, they're so amazing. They go, watch me give. 
and they would have this trumpet-like uh, horn that would lead into the treasury, and they had this way of taking money and flinging it into it, so it would actually start on the rim, and it would go down and down and down and down until finally it hit the bottom. And they're like, wow, they give like who knew? They were religious machines. They had it all worked out on the outside. But what they lacked was a true relationship with the living God on the inside. I've been doing a study with somebody recently. We've been going through the Gospel of John. And Jesus confronts the Pharisees by saying this, If you really knew the Father, you would love me. But they rejected him because they never knew the Father. And so they had this externalism, this religiosity, this moralism. But what they didn't have was a living relationship with the living God by faith alone. It's always been God's standard. Always been God's standard. So um, Jesus uh, will go on in uh, John chapter, or John, Ma Matthew chapter 6 to kind of lay waste to some of their hypocrisies. But uh, Jesus later on in Matthew kind of clarifies it very, very straightforwardly when he says this about the scribes and the Pharisees. Woe to you. Now the word woe means condemnation upon you. Scribes and Pharisees, what does he call them? The word hypocrite means a, an actor. Somebody who's playing at something. See how well I did at this role? So he calls them play actors. For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish so that the outside may be clean also. Woe to you, condemnation on you, scribes and Pharisees. What? One more time. Thank you. Yes, you play actors. For you are like whitewashed tombs which on the outside look really pretty, but inside you are nothing more than full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. So you see, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, their righteousness was all external. It was all what they could do. And so to exceed that righteousness, as Jesus is going to show through the Sermon on the Mount, actually isn't that hard. Okay kind of shown you a little bit of what the people that day would have understood and what they would have appreciated. Um, Jesus, I've come to not abolish the law, but to fulfill it. They really weren't sure what that meant. Maybe he was this uh, savior king uh, who was going to come and vanquish our enemy. Uh, and then this whole idea of exceeding the righteousness of the Pharisees, they really weren't cool with that at this point. They're really wrestling with what that meant. But today, we live on the other side of the cross. Much of what Jesus has said here now makes perfect sense. Not only do we live on the other side of the cross, we live on the other side of the tomb. Jesus Christ today is raised to the right hand of God the Father, where he is actively interceding on the behalf of his own, where he has now sent the Holy Spirit to born again his children, to inhabit his children. And today we also happen to have the completed word of God. All those things the people on the other side of the cross did not have, but we now possess today. So let me show you now by application of what Jesus is saying, what it means to us. 
What is he saying to us today? And the first thing I would like you to notice is, is what I would simply call this. The gift of righteousness that is given to us in Jesus Christ. This is what he's talking about in verses 17 and 18. Because what he is going to do is ultimately go on to fulfill the law and then to offer to the very people the righteousness that God requires. Now, this is called positional righteousness. Another word for this could be imputed. That means it's credited to you. Uh, another word for this, and I think it's probably a better word, is alien righteousness. Alien righteousness does not mean it snuck across the border, okay? It's not what that means. But alien righteousness means it's not, it's not of us. It's apart from us, and it is extended and given to us. So as we see the words of Jesus here, do not think that I have come to ab abolish the law of the prophets, but rather I have, come to, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Uh, the word fulfill there literally means to fill full. To fill full. So I haven't come to abolish the Mosaic law or the prophecies, but rather I have come to fill them full. I am going to show you what it looks like to live in a right relationship with God. I am going to show you what it looks like uh, to, to see all the pictures of the Older Testament uh, colored in. How many here uh, play with coloring books? Come on. Come on. Yes, there we go. Yes, yes. How many like the adult coloring books that are out there now? Yay! We got a few people. Yes. You know, in, a in, a, in much the same way, the Mosaic Law and the prophecies of the Older Testament are kind of like a coloring book page. You know, you've got the, the basic outline of structures, but there's no depth or color or real beauty about them. But what Jesus does is when he comes, he actually colors them in. He actually gives them depth and beauty, and he gives them a, a, an understanding that they were meant to have, but only he could color them in. So as we look in the Bible, we discover that everything, everything in the Older Testament pictures him. Everything says he is coming. Everything is, is, is a drawing that he ultimately fills in through his presence. I like the way uh, these folks put it here. I, I think it captures it pretty well. 66 books, dozens of authors, a holy canon thousands of years in the making. Consider the works, accounts of history and law, prophecy and poetry, verses of wisdom and letters from friends. Now, look again, what do you see? Behind the fallen creation where the first son Adam led all humanity astray, there is the faithful son, Adam, who fulfills the promise and crushes the serpent's head. In the waters of the flood, just as God used Noah to save his family from judgment, there is a greater vessel by which all God's children are saved. On the altar of desperation, just as Isaac asked his father, where is the lamb for the sacrifice, comes the answer from the wilderness, behold the lamb. Just as Moses struck the rock in the wilderness, there is a rock whose living water satisfies forever. 
in the battle against Goliath, where an unlikely king became a champion for his people, we see the shadow of a greater king who defeats sin and death to claim our victory. In the long exile of a people, Isaiah's eyes were opened to a vision of salvation and the eternal journey of God's people to the promised land. Until finally, in humble manger lay the hope of the world, the king who reigns from a throne of straw to Calvary's cross to the deathless tomb of eternal Easter. Every story casts his shadow, every word Every verse bears his testimony. The Holy Messiah, Jesus Christ, Eternal King. My concern is that most of us kind of look at our own lives and we think, not so bad, pretty good guy. Uh, I certainly don't do some really bad things, or, you know, maybe I think them, but I don't actually act out on them, so I'm not such a bad guy, uh, you know, and if I could just kind of clean myself up a little here and, and do a little reformation over here, then somehow, some way, you know, I'm not bad, God's going to accept me because I'm a pretty good dude, huh? And I think to some degree we, we start thinking like that. If I could just you know, turn over a new leaf here or just be a little better there, that somehow I will be acceptable to God. Do you know what that's called? Phariseeism. That's what the Pharisees were doing, wasn't it? They were cleaning the outside of the cup and of the plate, but inside was a heart that was corrupt and corroded. They had this beautiful looking tombs, they whitewashed on the outside, but inside they were filled with dead men's bones. You see, the problem is this, we do not need reformation in a relationship with God. What we need is resuscitation. What we ultimately need is resurrection, because the Bible says very clearly that we are dead in our trespasses and in our sins, and there is nothing we can do as a dead person to have a movement towards God that's going to benefit our lives. So, so what God does is this. God has a demand of per perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness to be brought into his presence. No matter how much you try to clean up on the inside and the outside, you can never achieve that standard. So what God did is he sent his son, Jesus Christ, and he went on to live the life we were meant to live. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. Never sinned. He lived the life we were called to live. But then he went on to actually die the death that we were supposed to die because the soul that sins, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. Eternal separation from God. God, knowing that none of us could ever achieve that standard, sent his son to do so, and now he gives the free gift of righteousness to have relationship with him through Christ alone, by faith alone, by grace alone. That's what he does. What Jesus was saying back there, those people were hearing, they couldn't make sense of. But on this side of the cross, we have much more clarity. The law was never given to make us righteous. It was to show how unrighteous we really are and to cast us on God's mercy. And God's mercy is found in Jesus Christ. 
So that is what Jesus was ultimately hinting at, expressing at that point that we now understand on this side of the cross. It is so ultimately important that we understand that our righteousness is found here and nowhere else. It is alien to us. It doesn't come from us. It is given to us. I like what the, the prophet Isaiah went on to say about why God sent his son. He was to be pierced for our transgressions. He was to be crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that would ultimately bring us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord God laid on him the iniquity of us all on the cross. And then what he did was he killed his son. He poured out the wrath and judgment that we deserve upon his own son. Because his standard was perfection. And the only way we could ever achieve that is if somebody did it for us. And then it was given to us as a gift. There's no other way. There's no other way. Uh, Paul's uh, equivalent to what Isaiah is saying here is actually uh, my life verse comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. For he, God the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We're all moralists at heart. By that I mean we don't want to believe that we are as bad off as we can be. See, we may not be as bad as we can be. I can be worse. But the Bible says we are as bad off as we can be dead in relationship to God. We don't like to hear that. We'd like to think we're pretty good, that we don't really need that kind of uh, resuscitation or resurrection of ourselves. But it's true. And the challenge is this. We're going to start walking into a portion of Scripture that, that's going to challenge us to great, very high moral standards. And if we're not careful, we might actually think that by achieving these standards, we're going to somehow win the favor of God. It doesn't work that way. You can never win the favor of God because it's already been won for you in Jesus. And anything you seek to add to that only takes away from what Jesus did. And God won't give it to you if you're going to try and earn it. So it was freely extended to us, fully extended to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, when it comes to the Mosaic Law, hear what Paul has to say. These are very important words because our tendency is to be moralists. But Paul said this in Galatians 2.16. We know that a person is not going to be justified. That is to be declared righteous, to be in right relationship with God. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in who? Yes, because by the works of the law, what? That's right. You see, you can't be a Pharisee and make it into the presence of God. You can't be in you know, working these things in, in such detail and trying to be so good and try to do so right. It doesn't work. It only works through Jesus. Okay, here's another place where Paul says the same thing. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Notice this, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, he's talking about Jesus. Remember, Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets? He says, 
That righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. He came to die to give us the righteousness we need to stand before God. And again, if we attempt to uh, go uh, to the law to somehow win God's favor, uh, Paul warns us that if we do, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. Why? Because you have fallen away from grace. So, as we start into this section and as we try to understand the personal implications of what Jesus was saying on the Mount many years ago, Jesus is saying that he is going to give the gift of righteousness to us by faith alone, in Christ alone. And that initiates a relationship with the living God. Now, that's awesome. Amen? That's awesome. My, my concern is this. You know, once we get to that place where, yeah, we're willing to repent and put faith in Christ, where we're willing to turn from ourselves and sin and embrace him and walk in obedience with Christ, when we get here... I'm afraid sometimes we look at justification, the fact that I've been given this righteousness of Jesus, that I can now go to heaven. We look at that as kind of like, woohoo, I break the tape at the finish line. I'm in. I think we look at it like that. But when we're, in reality, what we need to understand justification is justification is actually the starting blocks of the race called the Christian life. Once you're in right relationship with God, you can now begin to pursue the Christ life. This must come first, positional righteousness. Then we can go on to realize uh, what I would call next that Jesus is referring to here, the grace of righteousness through obedience to his word. You see, not only do we receive the grace freely in Christ, but we are called to grow in grace. It is through loving obedience to God's word that we now become righteous not just positionally, but practically in our lives. We grow truly good towards others. Now that we have the free gift of new life, the Holy Spirit enters into our lives and makes us born again. As newborn babes, we desire the milk of the word. As sheep, we love to hear our shepherd's voice. As God's children, we desire to please daddy. We want to honor him with our lives. As grafted in branches, we long to be fruitful. Choose whatever metaphor you want from the scriptures to talk about this new relationship with God the Father through faith in Jesus. They all say the same thing. There is a desire, a longing in the child of God's heart for rightness, righteousness, goodness. The indwelling Holy Spirit gives us a longing for holiness. Not to be made right with God, but because we are right with God. Not to become his children, but because we are his children. Jesus never came to retract or remove God's law, but he came to fulfill it and enable us to live it out to the glory of God the Father. That is what Jesus is saying on the Sermon on the Mount to these people as they're standing there. He was talking about the scandal of grace. It's not what you do. It's who you trust. And after trusting him, you walk in loving obedience with him. And he'll begin to transform your life. Not to make you acceptable to the Father. You're already there. This is just to honor dad. So that you can have a kid that looks like him. And he can be, you know, kind of proud that he's now got a reflection on earth that other people are looking at that looks like him. 
This is what he's talking about. And so what I want to say is this. It says, whoever relaxes the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We are going to... um, we are going to be working through some uh, difficult material over the next number of weeks together. We're going to deal with issues like anger and lust. We're going to deal with uh, pride. We're going to deal with manipulation. We're going to deal with so many things. And as we begin this journey, it begins by being rightly related to the Father by faith alone and Christ alone, by the grace of God alone. And then, as we walk in obedience with him, we are going to understand that these things will not ultimately come very easily. Um, As we begin this walk with Jesus, uh, we we have his righteousness. We're then going to begin this process of transformation. And I like the way that uh, Timothy put it here in Timothy 3, 16 and 17. He said, all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. All of it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for what? There we go. Righteousness is a gift you get. But it's also something that we're called to practically work out in our lives. And it is a training process. It doesn't happen automatically. Amen? It takes effort, it takes work, it is not easy, but the amount of work you put into it, I believe by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, you will begin to realize the benefits of it. So there is a training process. Think of it a little bit like this. This is a really bad analogy, but we'll go with it anyway. Um, Think of it like this. Think of it like playing an instrument. How many of you play an instrument? Awesome, awesome. Did you know that I play an instrument as well? It just so happens that uh, I was given a violin. Uh, Actually, it is a violin that was made by my grandfather. And uh, it was willed to me. Uh, If I can get the light just right, it says this inside the body. Uh, Alva Burnell Small. Alva. What a great name, eh? It's my middle name. Thanks, Granddad. Alva Burnell Small, maker, Peaks Island, Maine, March 1934. So he built this himself. Uh, he loved to play it. Uh, in fact, he had a musical family. He, uh, ship captain was his father, and so they had lots of good uh, fun. So this is a gift that was given to me. And I know I'd make my grandfather proud if I could, you know, play it and uh, make everybody else just say, oh, that's awesome. Um, It's kind of a bit like what God does. He gives us a gift called righteousness. And what his goal in our lives is that we would realize it to the point where we are are doing good for others and bringing him glory. So um, in an effort to make my granddaddy happy... Why is all this moaning going on? (laughs) Gee. 
I just want you to know everything I've learned, I've learned from Joey, my son-in-law. Is Joey here? Where's Joey? Oh, he just stepped out. So when you see him, you can tell him how good he's doing with me, okay? Okay, so um, this is what it sounds like. Uh, it's a beautiful instrument. No, 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 back it up. Okay, thank you. That's my son up there. <laughs> Dude, you're ruining the effect. Here we go. This is what it sounds like when you're given a gift and you just use it. I'm thinking about going on the road and selling tickets. What do you think? You mean to tell me that you can't just receive something like this, but you actually have to practice? You actually have to work at it? You actually have to maybe find someone to give you lessons who's been down that path and understands a little more clearly what it takes to do this? You may actually want to get it reconditioned because there's only three out of four strings present. <laughs> you mean I can't just play it and have everybody be blessed and bring glory to the Father? Oh. It's a bit like righteousness in our lives, isn't it? You get the gift of it. You could never earn it or deserve it. It is given to you to bring you into a right relationship with God the Father. He demands a certain righteousness, and then he gives it. But then his desire in our lives is that we would then begin to, to practice his word and realize the effect of his word in our lives so our lives become finely tuned to who he is. And our lives end up becoming this beautiful music in the lives of others, in the Father's glorified. You know, um, it takes real effort to learn a good instrument. Grace is not opposed to effort. I just want you to know that. Grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. In fact, the Apostle Paul said this to the Philippian believers, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Work out has the idea of strenuous work, lifting weights. You don't build muscle without resistance. And the same thing is true in our spiritual lives. You need to work it out. You need to, you need to put in real effort. And you know what? You're going to fail more often than you succeed. Amen? And I just want you to know there's plenty of forgiveness with the Father. He's more than gracious to forgive our efforts as we seek to grow and learn in this whole process of becoming like Jesus. So there's plentiful uh, forgiveness. There's all kinds of additional grace. Maybe it would be very helpful if we actually got somebody who could walk with us who has done this and begin to learn from them too. It's called discipleship. And then we grow and we learn and we strive and we're, we're, we're making strides. And then we really, really mess up. And we find forgiveness, more grace in people who love us in spite of ourselves. And we go on to finally be able to play the instrument in a way that glorifies God. You ruined the effect, but let's finish it up anyway. <laughs> 
You know, uh, I feel really badly. In the first service, we have a dear lady uh, who's a member here for many, many years, and she's blind. So when she heard me crank on this thing the first time, kind of sawing it in half, she went like this. And then when the music came on, she didn't know it wasn't me, and she said, oh. <laughs> God bless her. Well, we are getting ready for this journey. It will not be easy. The grace God requires for righteousness' sake is given, but to grow in that righteousness takes effort. It's going to be an interesting walk. So next Sunday is... And next Sunday, we're going to talk about the issue of anger. Don't you think that's a good idea? Okay. I want to invite those who are going to serve this morning. Uh, We're going to close our time with an observance of the bread and the cup. What I would like to have happen as the elements are being handed out, in just a minute, Kevin's going to play kind of as a backdrop to uh, the elements being handed out. I want you to use the next few moments to kind of reflect on Jesus. I want you to reflect on whether or not you have embraced him and him alone as your righteous standing before the Father because there is no other way. If you have done that, I would like you to reflect on Jesus, and I'd like you to think about a part of your life where you're you're no longer going to resist the work of God, but you're going to tell God, I'm freely going to assist you in the work you're seeking to do in my life. So either you need to embrace Christ in these next few minutes, or you need to tell him, All to you I surrender.